is Naomi. We're 40-something moms and first cousins who know what it's like to veer off the path assigned to us. We've juggled motherhood, marriage, college, and career as we questioned our faith traditions while exploring new identities and ways of seeing the world. Without any maps for either of us to follow, we've had to figure things out as we go and appreciate that detours and dead ends are essential to the path. Along the way, we've uncovered a few insights we want to share with fellow travelers. We want to talk about the questions we didn't know who to ask and the options we didn't know we had. So whether you're feeling stuck or already shaking things up, we are here to cheer you on and assure you that the best is yet to come. Welcome to Uncovered, Life Beyond. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Uncovered, Life Beyond. This is Naomi. And this is Rebecca. We are here today talking about life and the whole process of trying to juggle it all. We're excited you're here with us. You know, this past week was a transition week for me. I'm back on contract at work and classes start next week. So there's just a lot going on. And I know you're feeling a lot the same way too, aren't you? Yeah, I am kind of. It is exhausting. I will say, first of all, that you single moms do not get enough credit. Let me just say that. You don't get enough credit. You don't get enough help. You don't get enough support. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you. And uh, I agree. I know when I found myself a single mom and particularly when I was caring for my children most of the time, um, because Mm -hmm. at first they were with me half the time and with their dad half the time. And when that changed and they started spending almost all the time with me, I had a real deer in the headlights moment. And I thought about my friends who have been single moms for a long time and often under much more difficult circumstances than I was in. Right. And I had that same feeling like, wow, how have you been doing it all this time (laughs) and still showing up like you do? It's a lot. I feel bad. Maybe better word would be frustrated Mm -hmm. that this is where so many women find themselves. Right. But I want to follow that up with saying that I know it's not easy, even for those who are in partnered relationships. Aside from a handful of exceptions, most of us are feeling stretched thin. Most of us are just trying to keep our heads above water trying to meet all the needs, all the responsibilities, all the things, meeting all the expectations that we feel in life. You know, I think that's a really good point. I've had several situations personally crop up with single mom friends who really needed help. And I remember being a little surprised at myself that I wasn't engaging like I typically do. And I kind of sat with that because it wasn't that I didn't care. I I really cared. And I just kind of sat in that for a bit. And I realized that I am just feeling so tired. In that moment, I kind of realized that, you know what, that is probably many of us. That is probably my neighbor and 
every other woman between every other human between here and wherever we're going. So yeah. Well, and especially anyone who has caregiving responsibilities, um, someone who is either earning an income or needs to be earning an income, right? Anyone who is trying to do lots of things at once, and we're feeling tired. And an image that comes to my mind is that it's like we're trying to work on two assembly lines at once. We're trying to play all these different roles and meet all these different expectations at one time. And and it's exhausting. I think it's really important as we think about those of us who are attending college later in life, but not necessarily later in life. Anyone who is doing college who also has caregiving responsibilities, it's really important for us to remember that institutions of higher education, colleges, universities were designed for wealthy single men who are being supported by their families, not for women or anyone really who was supporting a family. Granted, there have been lots of changes made to higher education over the centuries, but that core assumption about who the typical college student is hasn't really changed. In American society, women are expected to work a job like they don't have a family and raise a family as though we don't have a job. And then when you add school into the mix, you've essentially got three assembly lines you're trying to keep up with. Right. No wonder we're tired. Right. And I love the assembly line analogy, and it's perfect. This is the first semester, the first fall, that I am looking at going back to school, and I am just filled with dread. I've been kind of hauling this feeling around all summer, and I keep trying to analyze what it is, and I keep having kind conversations with myself. Um, My former self would have been like, oh, for heaven's sake, Rebecca, you're going into your senior year. You're almost done. Suck it up, buttercup. Like, formerly, I would have talked to myself that way. But this summer, I was having conversations like, oh, my goodness, Rebecca, of course you're tired. You've been doing this for what? I think this is my sixth fall. Of course you're tired. It's exhausting. But you know what? You're so close to being finished. You can do this. And and the other conversation I have with myself is I kind of had this mental goal of completing college by the time I turn 50. And, and I think I can and I think I will. But this summer, I've just really been mad about that. I have been like mad that... I'm going to be 50 when I get done. And again, I know that I'm going to turn 50 and I am just lucky (laughs) to be this close to done with college. And it's an incredible gift. And I am so grateful. I struggle because I think what I could have done with my life had it happened sooner. And I think I am angry because I am trying to support my kids. I'm trying to support my friends. I'm working and I'm doing school and I am just so freaking tired. So it's like I'm trying to hold and balance both sides. I'm grateful, but yes, I'm also angry. I'm lucky, but I'm so glad my kids are luckier. Thank you for sharing that. I first want to 
thank you for talking about the anger you feel, because that's something that we often don't give ourselves permission to talk about. Most of us have things to be angry about. Anger is something we should probably talk about more, isn't it? We should. Could do a whole podcast on anger. <laughs> right. <laughs> but beyond that, I can identify with that feeling of being behind or that feeling of needing to catch up. And I just want to say you deserve so much credit for hanging in there. This institution, as I said a minute ago, was not designed right. for you or me. It wasn't designed for our needs. It wasn't designed for the reality of our lives. For me, the remarkable thing, the milestone is not in whether or not you finish before 50, but that you've stuck it out so long, that you got there in the first place. I think about all the swimming upstream you had to do to get to where you are now. And I think about all the experiences that you had instead of going to college earlier. And I think about how that is all, all those experiences are responsible for the person that you are now, for the insight you have, for the wisdom that you bring to your life and to the lives of people around you. So I am 100% with you on grieving that loss of what interrupted access to education costs you. And also at the same time, I just want to celebrate the incredible accomplishment that you are achieving. I think it's important to recognize that we cannot life hack our way out of an impossible situation. And when we feel that internal pressure to catch up in situations like these, I think it says more about the unrealistic standards in society than it does about any personal failing on our part. And I think instead of comparing ourselves to the most brilliant exception, you know, that one individual who uh, defied all the odds, uh, I think we should talk about the reality that the vast majority of us are living in. You know, thanks for saying that. And I just took a really deep breath. I had never really thought about celebrating the fact that I'm sticking it out, pushing through it. In fact, I think internally, and I don't think I realized I was doing this, I think I kind of felt shame that it's taking so long, which I'm like, I would never shame anyone else for that. So thank you. I hadn't I hadn't processed that before. And thank you for your kind words. I don't think I deserve them, but I so appreciate that. But I think it is a real thing we do to ourselves. We constantly try to life hack our way out of situations that are nearly impossible. And then we shame ourselves when we can't match whatever unrealistic standard someone else who got lucky or had support systems we might have not had managed to accomplish. Again, to your point, we spend a lot of time, I think, talking about the person who had an eighth grade education and manage to make it big. But we don't talk about those who didn't make it and those who are struggling. And I think and that needs to be analyzed, why we don't do that. 
Well, if we think that the reason we're struggling is because of a personal failing on our part, we're not going to talk about the struggle because we don't want to invite that shame on ourselves. And so even though I think the vast majority of us are struggling in some way, we're hesitant to risk calling ourselves out. What ends up being celebrated are those few brilliant exceptions. And I wonder if we don't talk about those few brilliant exceptions because it feels safer and more hopeful to convince ourselves that we can possibly be that Mm -hmm. instead of realizing that the majority, in fact, the vast majority, don't become that brilliant exception. And I think it's fascinating that we can convince ourselves that we might actually get lucky as well. Right. Which probably is what a lot of people in power would want us to believe, too. That narrative has been pushed. It really serves their purpose. Yeah. It really served their purpose. And it also helps justify why they are the rare exceptions. Right. right. It it says it's because they did something to merit it. They did something to deserve it. They have worked harder to achieve it. That feeds into the shame we're all trying to avoid. Exactly. While shame is not a very productive emotion, I think it's not something to run from either. I think it's good to recognize it and recognize what it is. And that's how we can work through it and get on the other side of it. Pausing to think about it, feel it, question it is really where we get freedom from it. And we start to question those assumptions. Right. And also understanding the power when it's effective, Mm -hmm. the power that it gives to whomever is trying to project the shame. One of my kids was just in a situation. And as they were explaining the situation to me, I'm like, wait, do you know what the term shaming means? And we ended up having a whole conversation about it because thankfully it wasn't something we have done much of in our household. And I think it was almost to the extent that um, my kid didn't really have a name for what was happening. It was like they knew it was happening. They knew it felt crappy, but being able to identify it and say, oh, they were shaming and they're trying to gain power. They're trying to gain control was really kind of interesting to to see them process it and understand the dynamics. But you're so right, because recognizing it, recognizing it actually removes the power. Agreed. Earlier today, I saw a post by a mom who was talking about heading into the school year, and she was dreading the impossibility of juggling all the things. And she was asking for ideas from others who've been there about you know, how to survive trying to do all the things, being a caregiver, working, and, and going to school. It seemed like now would be a great time to talk about that. I think the consensus in the thread was that there is not a secret. (laughs) Survival is what it's about. But I do think there are some mindsets, there are a few practical things that we could talk about 
that can help us get through a bottleneck situation like this? You know, on that note, a few years ago, I saw a video of a lady and I, for the life of me, don't have any idea who it was. I was trying to figure it out. I think she was talking at Yale or some prestigious school. And she was talking about how people see her as as being successful. Oftentimes she gets asked, what's the secret? And she said, what we need to understand is if you're successful in one area, you're probably failing at another. She said, you know, today you look at me and you think I'm successful because I'm standing here talking, but I'm failing because I'm missing my kid's soccer game. And she's like, you know, if I am having my kid's birthday party, I'm probably missing a business meeting. And if I'm saying yes to X, it means I'm saying no to Y. And it can feel like failure. I so appreciated that. I think it's so true. Gives us freedom because maybe, maybe what we tend to wish to define as success or failure isn't quite as black and white as we want it to be. Maybe it's more nuanced. Maybe we have to be okay with having that success sometimes and that failure sometimes and understanding it's part of the game, it's part of life instead of constantly trying to perfect it. I know at one point in my life, I had to have a conversation with my kids and I'm like, okay, so how important is it to you that I met every soccer game? How important is it to you that I am volunteering at school? What makes you feel seen? What's important to you? And I was surprised at their answers. They didn't think I had to be at every soccer game. They didn't think I had to be at every school party. They just wanted me to show up on occasion. And that also gave me a lot of freedom because, you know, I can do one game a week. At that point, I couldn't do two games a week. And knowing that my kid isn't sitting there devastated because his mother isn't there made me feel better. And I really think maybe if we would talk more about relationships and having solid relationships and let go of some of those expectations, it might serve us better too. I really like that. Having the kind of relationship that lets you have that open conversation is worth so much. I know I had to think of something that I saw when I was deep in grad school, and it was the summer that my second child was born, and it was uh, 2012, the Olympics. I remember watching a runner who had just won gold, a gold medal, I believe it was. And this was the second time she was at the Olympics four years before she'd come in. I'm not sure if she'd come in bronze or, you know, or maybe not, Mm -hmm. maybe she hadn't placed. She was talking about what she had done differently to increase her skill. Mm -hmm. And I believe she was maybe a mom of three. The words I remember were, I had to get selfish. She had to get selfish to make time for training. That really spoke to me because I was staring down my dissertation at the time and feeling very torn between all the different roles I was trying to do. Obviously, I care. You care deeply about our children. This is not about neglecting them, but it is about being clear about what everybody's needs are, not just hyper-focusing on everybody else's needs and forgetting our own, but it's about emphasizing the importance of everybody's needs being met and not just some. 
You know, I've often said that I feel like for some of us, what feels like bold might actually be healthy boundaries. And maybe what feels to some of us like selfishness might also be healthy boundaries. And it's a practice and it's a skill. And it's one I'm certainly still trying to navigate because we were so conditioned to never be selfish and to ensure that everyone else is getting their needs met. And we forget about our own. Right. Where selfishness can almost be defined as any consideration for one's own needs. Right. Yeah. One way I like to think about prioritizing in really stressful times is this idea of differentiating between glass balls and rubber balls. So when we're juggling, we have some things that we're doing that if we drop them, if we drop those balls, they're going to break. And But if they're a rubber ball, eh, it'll bounce, but it's not going to break. The consequences are not going to be that serious. I think when everything is feeling important, when everything is feeling urgent, it can be easy to stress over everything. But figuring out which is a glass ball, which is a rubber ball, what can be safely dropped, and what is not can be really clarifying. And once we are clear on what is important, I think that can bring some relief to that stress. I was talking just a minute ago about those dissertation writing days. And I remember at the time, I realized that the the glass ball was graduating on time. And to graduate on time, I had to get my dissertation done. And so there were other things I could have been doing at that time that would have been good things to do professionally. I could have been doing things with my children, with my family that would have been awesome to do. But I knew that it was in everybody's best interest for me to graduate on time. And so that became the focus. And did that limit me in some ways? Yes. Yes, it did. Because I didn't have the publishing record by the time I graduated that I would have had if I would have prioritized that instead of my dissertation. But I had a job. So ultimately, it worked out. The main point I want to make here is that it helped me manage that stress of trying to do all the things because we can't do all the things. Well, and again, I can't imagine trying to navigate that with a toddler and a newborn. I mean, that is a lot. And I think you should be so proud of yourself for figuring that out and for knowing and being able to figure out what is important. And I do wonder if that skill is maybe what helps people finish or allows people to finish. And I'm curious how we can better develop that skill because it's very easy to get overwhelmed and just kind of freeze because absolutely you can't do it all. I think this is where it's important to distinguish between what are our values, what are our goals, mm-hmm. and what are just expectations that are put on us that we don't even really buy into. Because at the end of our life, when we look back on what we're proud of or what we wish we would have done differently, I don't think we'll ever regret being true to our values, being true to what was most important to us, rather than 
to driving ourselves insane trying to meet everybody's expectations because expectations are a cruel, cruel boss. They are a cruel boss. And I so agree with you. The only comment I have is they're a cruel boss, but they're a very real boss. And totally navigating the fallout of going against the expectations is real. And I think sometimes we shame ourselves and others for struggling with that whole cycle. We shame people because they, you know, are worried about other people's expectations. Well, if it was easy to let go of those, we wouldn't be stuck in the cycle. And while the expectations are a cruel boss, they're also a very effective boss because the game is real. Absolutely. I'm so glad you said that because yes, there's a reason that it's so easy to give into those expectations. Right. right. We've been conditioned right. to fulfill them or to seek the approval of others right. for fulfilling them. To get really practical, I think some of those rubber balls that we can just let go of are things like relaxing our definition of a clean house. There are more important things than housework, which might have my Amish housewife ancestors rolling in their graves. <laughs> but it's also from those same ancestors that I know there are more important things than than the superficial things like housework. It's true. And the thing is, it's so subjective. I have an inner critic always, always telling me that my house isn't clean enough, that I should do better, that I'm probably, you know, letting my kids down. And just recently I had someone visiting and multiple times they commented on my clean house, which I found hilarious. Like I, I chuckled every time it was mentioned. But my point is not whether or not my house is clean or dirty. My point is it's so subjective. While she thinks it's clean enough and way clean, I have had other people criticize my housekeeping skills. And again, I think that's why it's so important to, as much as humanly possible, let go of those expectations and figure out what's important to you and the people that live with you. I agree. And and I want to say along with that, I like a clean house. There is a part of me that would love to be obsessive about cleaning my house. I just know that it's impossible. So <laughs> I try to keep the clutter to a minimum. And that's about the best I can do. Because <laughs> I think you I've, do just fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I've also found that one of the benefits of having a smaller house is that you have less space to put it's stuff. True. It's and true. actually, you spend less time cleaning and less time doing housework when you have a smaller place. I also want to give anyone who needs permission to use paper plates to take shortcuts. I mean, I grew up in a household hearing the message that using things like paper plates, paper napkins, Kleenexes is, is a waste. You'll never get that money back. You're throwing that stuff away. But do you know what assumption that makes? It's making the assumption that the person who is laundering those items, the person who's washing those dishes, it's making the assumption that their labor is not worth anything. Yeah. 
I realize that using paper plates, using paper products is not the most environmentally friendly choice to make, but I have a problem with making a problem as big as the environment, something that rests on the shoulders of housewives. One more problem that rests on the shoulder of housewives. We didn't create the problem and we should not be on the hook to solve it because we can't. You know, thank you for saying that. And thank you for saying that to me like three or four years ago, because this was a big deal to me, both from the money perspective and from trying to save the earth. And I would spend an embarrassing amount of time deliberating whether I could or should use paper products. And I remember you telling me that and it like just cleaned up my brain because yes, I still like to save money. And yes, I am all for saving the earth, but the solution doesn't rest on my shoulders anymore. And that feels really good. I agree. I cringe every time I choose not to recycle or do something, but I think giving ourselves that much power is just fooling ourselves and stressing us out and nobody's really benefiting. Right. And it's also giving the people who are really responsible for it a cop out. Exactly. I mean, it's it's not putting the responsibility where it belongs. Again, personal responsibility is important, but the, the people benefiting and polluting the earth are the ones that have convinced us that personal responsibility is the issue. And it we're just not that big. Right, right. And I think this concept applies to other areas as well, of right. life as well, far beyond recycling, that while we play a role in solving many of these problems, we can't take responsibility for things that aren't ours to solve. Right. And understanding that and taking some time to think through that, I think, can help us distinguish between what's something to focus on and what's something to let go of. Right. Being aware of who might have your back, who at school, who at work, who at home, who in your personal life might have your back is really important. And you've had some professors who really make a conscious choice to do this, right? Yeah. So I think think I was maybe in my sophomore year. I was just amazed. But I had a professor who at the beginning of the year said, before we go any further, I want to know who in this room has children. And I kind of like almost get teary eyed every time I think about it. But she looked at us who raised her hands. I think it was me and one other person. And she said, anytime you have a sick kid, anytime you need to drive them somewhere, anytime you need to bring them to class, you just let me know and you do that. She says the pressure of being a mother is crazy. Plus, you're here in my classroom and I'm so proud you're here. And I want to do everything I can to support and make that process easier for you. And I will always carry her words with me. And also, that is now who I want to be. That is what I want to project out into the world. It was such an incredible way to both acknowledge, but also directly participate in making the process easier. It took the pressure off. Right. 
I think we all have people in our lives who are like that. And I think sometimes for those of us who maybe came from poverty, we think that those with plenty are the ones who would be most happy to share. And my experience has been, it is literally the person who has $5 left to their name who will share with you if you ask, because they know the struggle and they know it what the pride that it takes to ask. Not only will they share with you, but they'll do it in such a way that you can leave with your dignity intact. So my observation would be, my experience is, surround yourself with people who understand your process. And not specifically school, if that's your issue, but even someone who has struggled financially, someone who has done without, someone who has been hungry, those people will have your back. You know, I find that usually the people who have the biggest talk, who have the most to say about bootstrapping their way to success are often the ones who got the most help and they got it the earliest. They're so used to getting it that they, that we don't even notice anymore. Because the reality is that institutions of higher learning were designed for people who already had resources. The tradition of legacy admissions ensures that those who have grandparents with money get in. It ensures that they don't ever have to bootstrap. That they don't actually ever have to bootstrap. And so when they say they do it alone, there was help there. The help was just invisible to them. Right. And, and you know, they brag about starting, you know, a business from a, their parents' garage. Some of us didn't have parents or a garage. I mean, even though that sounds like humble beginnings to someone, it's way more than what some of us had. That's right. I like the saying that instead of talking about people making good choices, we should talk about what choices did they have to make? Like what what are the options available to them? Absolutely. Absolutely. So when we zoom out from thinking about these day-to-day kinds of ways we can manage all these competing responsibilities. I think it's also important to think about the larger context in which we are all living. And when I say all, I'm speaking specifically those of us who are living in the US, which that's our experience and that's where most of our listeners are. But I think it's worthwhile to remember that a big part of the reason that we are struggling to get an education that we are struggling to find affordable housing, that we are struggling to do so many of, to stay afloat, is because we are in a society that has decided it would rather fund billionaires than address child poverty. The way that we vote has implications. And if you're afraid we're going to make this political, just bear with us because there's more than one way to make things political. We tend to think of politics as a right or left issue, Democrat, Republican, but the issues we're talking about here cut across party politics. These are issues that affect everyone regardless of their political affiliation, and neither political party is doing a good job meeting these needs. There are other systems in place. There are other opportunities. And 
it comes down to as basic as when you vote against welfare, when you vote against women's rights, you're voting against your friend. You're voting against if you, God forbid, find yourself in a yucky divorce situation. The states that have the most robust child care and women's rights are truly the states you want to live in if your marriage falls apart or if you're in an abusive situation. It's not perfect. It's not easy even then. But it's better than the states who are trying to do away with no-fault divorce. Doing away with no-fault divorce, I think, is one of the scariest things we can do. You know, there's a statistic that after no-fault divorce was legalized in 1970, female suicide rates dropped by 20%. Yeah. So having that option is, as, as undesirable as it is, is better than not having it. I mean, it's a little bit like open heart surgery. Nobody wants open heart surgery. But when you're sick, you're glad it's an option. If you don't have no fault divorce, that means if you, if your daughter, if your cousin, if your friend finds herself in an abusive marriage, she can't leave that marriage unless her spouse agrees to it. Right. Or that she can prove that the partner did something that merited it. Right. That would depend on the state. And so if you are trying to get out of a difficult or an abusive situation, the abuser might be totally uncommitted to the relationship, but it serves their interests to stay married to you. They can make it almost impossible for you to get away while they continue to abandon the marriage or mistreat you or the children, and there's nothing you can do. So no-fault divorce is a way to take charge of your life, to make choices for yourself, and do it with a modicum of dignity. And I think this kind of points back to what we talked about previously. You know, we all somehow convince ourselves that we're inches away from being a billionaire. We're never close to being homeless. And I think we all want to believe that our marriage is going to last. I mean, I, I, I don't know anyone who came out of the Amish Mennonite community who doesn't take marriage seriously. Particularly, I would argue females. Females know that that is their that that that's but, their life, and they want it to be good. And I think you see women working really hard at creating strong marriages. But I think we like to convince ourselves that never would I be in a situation where our my marriage is bad or my marriage is abusive. When in reality, statistics are statistics. I also hope you don't find yourself in that situation, but chances are good if you don't, someone you know and love will. I think we need to take an honest look at how we can provide a safer world and a more supportive world for those we love. Absolutely. I think of an article that I read recently by Anne Helen Peterson, and we'll link it in the show notes, 
the title is Other Countries Have Social Safety Nets. The U.S. Has Women. And this was written in the context of the pandemic and how women were expected to work and take care of their families, their children, and be teachers, be all these things all at the same time. And it was completely unsustainable and completely unrealistic. And the reality is other countries have created a much better social safety net. For example, in some countries, women get the whole their whole last month of pregnancy off work and paid. Crazy. In Canada, they get a year of paid maternity leave. And in many European countries, there are stipends that fam- that families get because there's a recognition that it's expensive to raise children. And so many things are covered. Childcare for young children is covered. So many things are provided. And in the US, women are expected to just volunteer all that labor while also bearing the full responsibility of a job that that assumes they don't have those responsibilities. Fair Play by Eve Rodsky is also a resource that is worth looking at. Fair Play looks at the ways that couples can more fairly distribute uh, household labor. And so that it's not a lot of help for those of us who are single parents, but I know it's not easy even when there are two parents in the home. And I think Fair Play is is a resource for helping make things a little more balanced. When I think about the social safety net that every other post-industrial country in the world has that the U.S. does not, I think it's really useful to think about negative freedoms and positive freedoms. Um, Here, we tend to be very focused on negative freedom. So negative freedom might be the government doesn't make any laws about education. A positive freedom would be that everyone is guaranteed access to education. So a negative freedom would be the government doesn't make any laws about healthcare. A positive freedom would be making sure everyone has healthcare. And so when we focus on only negative freedoms, we are focusing on only part of what is required on what is needed for us to flourish. And so we can look at our lives with all these multiple roles that we're trying to fill and say, well, there are no laws that are keeping us from hiring help. But if we can't afford the help, that freedom doesn't do us any good. So I'm waiting for the day that we as a nation start thinking about what it would look like if we pursued positive freedom for more people in our country. I always love hearing you talk about the negative and positive freedom. That's a fairly new concept in my brain. And I think it is so fascinating and an important subject. So in conclusion, my dear friends, if you find yourself feeling like you are constantly playing catch up and worried about how in the world you're going to do it all, don't believe the lie that somehow you're failing or somehow you're not enough. Because the 
expectations that we have as a society are so unrealistic. And please be proud of yourself for how far you've come. Let's work together to create change. Sometimes I think we undermine how important small changes are, even in just the way we think, even in just the way we talk to ourselves. And I think when we change the way we think and the way we talk to ourselves, slowly it changes how we respond to other people. Then you have a bigger change. And as much as humanly possible, allow yourself to live based on the goals and the dreams that you find important and that you value. Slowly let go of others' expectations and even sometimes your own expectations. I don't care if you let go of one small expectation at a time. Celebrate the work you're doing there because that's hard work. We try to act like it's this easy process and, well, you just shouldn't care. Of course you should care. But I think maybe finding out and paying attention to whom you care about is more important than just adopting the vast culture's expectations. I often joke that if the patriarchy wants to continue, it should never allow a woman to turn 40. For me <laughs> and a lot of my friends, something crazy happens around the age of 40, and I don't know if it's hormonal. I don't know if it's just because we are so gosh darn tired, but something happens and things shift. When and if it happens for you, know you're normal and know that it's good and it's okay. Absolutely. And know that your liberation liberates others. We're all in this together. spending time with us today. The resources and materials we've mentioned are linked in the show notes and on Facebook at Uncovered Life Beyond. What are your thoughts about college and recovery from high demand religion? We know you have your own questions and experiences, and we want to talk about the topics that matter to you. Share them with us at UncoveredLifeBeyond at gmail.com. That's UncoveredLifeBeyond at gmail.com. If you enjoyed today's show and found value in it, please rate and review it on your favorite podcast app. This helps others find the show. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. Until next time, stay brave, stay bold, stay awkward. Stay awkward.